From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's weekly podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Ed Hammond, and I am joined again by Jason Kelly, our bureau chief here in New York, and from Boston, our private equity reporter, Melissa Mittelman. This week, guys, we are going to be talking about the latest promotion in the world of private equity, which was John Gray in Blackstone has been um, moved up, as I think was reasonably well expected, to the role of president and chief operating officer. Melissa, I'll start with you. How well telegraphed was this ascension for Gray? Pretty expected, I'd say. I think this is in some ways Blackstone's guy and has been for a number of years now. He joined the firm right out of college in 1992. He signed on to help with their real estate team, which was nascent at the time and now is their largest by assets, managing about $115 billion. I think there's been a couple of hints that leadership has dropped over the recent years that they see him as part of their succession plan. He was brought onto the board in 2012. And from a qualification standpoint, you know, he built this this real estate business. He also led some of the firm's most successful and largest deals, equity office properties, Hilton, which is one of the most profitable ever in the history of private equity. And so I think that, you know, it's certainly fair to say this was rumored for quite some time. I wouldn't say it's a surprise by any means, but I think it's nice to see it finally happen. Jason is sitting opposite me, nodding at everything you're saying. He he doesn't look surprised. Yeah, I mean, this was, as Melissa just very well laid out, this was not surprising to anyone. And yet it is such a milestone, I think, in the evolution of this firm and this industry, you know, to have someone who's not a founder, but as Melissa said, you know, grew up in this firm. And you sort of think about where Blackstone was in, in 1992 as this sort of emerging kind of quasi-merchant bank. Private equity wasn't even really a thing in the sense that they didn't call it private equity back then. It was leveraged buyouts. And to have this guy sort of grow up and grow this business and to put Blackstone not just on the map, but and I think Melissa would agree with this. I mean, real estate has ultimately been the competitive differentiation, yeah. it feels like, for Blackstone. Right, Melissa, do you agree? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Again, it's, it's their largest business. And people say, you know, is it a private equity firm? Is it an alternative asset manager? I'd say it's really the latter. It's almost a misnomer to call it private equity today, even though obviously that's a huge tenant of the firm as well. But from a real estate standpoint, they're one of the largest property owners globally. I think they've really made a, an impression in that segment. And I think it's also important to note that part of what Gray had to do at Blackstone, especially over the last 10 years, is to really grow and run a business. And that's really what he's being tasked with now is running this this firm that has, what is it, Melissa, around $400 billion in assets under management. So this is not a small enterprise, and and it has accelerated dramatically. I mean, I remember when 
Blackstone went public in, in 2007, they had roughly $80 billion in assets under management, which seemed like a lot at the time. And they have really, you know, as I said, sort of distanced themselves from their competitors. I think Apollo uh, is number two. Carlisle and KKR are sort of around there as well, the slightly you know smaller in air quote size. But Blackstone has grown into this, this really massive firm with lots of different businesses. So this is a challenging job that he's taking on. I think we shouldn't lose sight of that either. So- and I'd say it's almost even more challenging when you look at over the next four and a half years, five years, because Steve Short's been the CEO and, and co-founder. I said, let's you know, we have a plan to about double assets to about $800 billion in that time frame. And so I'd say he certainly has his hands full. And one thing that's sort of jumped out to me that was interesting in your story on this, Melissa, is that he still has to go to Schwartzman for any new initiative, right? So he's kind of running the shop as it is. But if he wants to do anything drastically different, he ultimately, Schwartzman has the call. Yeah. I mean, I'd say this is one way to think about it is moving this from a duo, Steve and Tony, into a trio. I think, you know, Tony still has a role at the firm, still reports to Schwartzman, and Steve is still um, CEO and, and really kind of the the key man in this. I think, obviously, Gray will be running the day-to-day operations, the day-to-day business, but I think it's much more of a kind of group leadership model. And I think we're starting to see that. I think the, you know, the co-CEO model across the industry is, you know, it's been in place and we're seeing kind of the next generation rise as co-presidents or co-CEOs. And so that, that kind of group leadership approach is something we're, we're seeing at large. And so the Tony in this equation is Tony James, who has been the president and COO, as you know, Ed. And you know, this is a guy who came out of investment banking. He ran DLJ and sort of managed the transition when it was acquired, you know, almost twenty years ago now, by Credit Suisse. And then you know, Schwartzman, and I think he gets credit for this, maybe not enough credit, in that. Schwartzman, who is a sort of powerful and big personality, it is Valentine's Day as we record this, and it is his birthday, we should note, 71. And, you know, he is a guy who, rather surprisingly to some people, relinquished a lot of control when he hired Tony James, who is not a small personality uh, in his own right. And most people who have watched the firm for the last 20 years really see Tony James as as the primary architect of growing this into right. the, this massive enterprise that we've been talking I, about. I used to hear about Tony James all the time. So back in my old seat at the Financial Times, I sat with Henny Sender, who's this sort of legend of private equity reporting, has covered private equity forever. And she always used to say, Tony James was washing my dishes last night. He came over for a dinner party. So there was always this kind of like great <laughs> Tony James stories. I think they're, they're very close, those two. So one other thing about this whole succession, obviously John Gray moving up from real estate, it creates um, some opportunities in the real estate group. And it sounds like there's going to be two heads of real estate. So Ken Kaplan, who I knew a little bit when he was back in Europe and I was in London, and uh, Kathleen McCarthy. What do we know, guys, about about these two and about what they are going to do with the real estate group? So Ken was most recently CIO, Chief Investment Officer of the real estate business. He's been at the firm for 21 years. He helped some of their expansion into Europe, which when you when you knew him, uh, was based out of the London office for several years. Kathleen McCarthy, COO of real estate, has really been focused on you know fundraising, business development. Has had her hands in a number of the kind of various aspects of the business for quite some time. I've heard she was also a close mentee of John Gray. So I'd say you have two people with extensive experience in you know the operations side, the investment side, the fundraising side, all the various key parts of of real estate. And it is something that does seem to be 
across Blackstone at this point is they have cultivated a pretty deep bench across all of their businesses. I mean, there is this generation that Melissa knows well of, you know, Joe Barada, who runs real estate, David Blitzer, who runs this tactical opportunities, tech ops fund, Bennett Goodman, who came on via the acquisition of GSO and runs the credit platform. This is a pretty serious uh, group of investors that have been assembled. And you know, one of the challenges for anybody in a position like Gray is going to be in is to kind of keep everybody keep happy and productive and, and develop even the next generation after that. Yeah, I uh, my my own experience with um, sort of people of that ilk at Blackstone was uh, this guy Chad Pike, who was in Europe. I think still is in Europe. Co runs TACOPS with Blitzer, and he is like he's the archetypal who who you would want to be if you had millions and millions of dollars. Like he really lives his life fun. He does like all this adventure skiing. He goes fishing in like the wilderness of Kamchatka. He's like a he's like a real deal, real fun guy. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see sort of where he ends up in all of this. If there's some reconfiguration at the top of the house, it would be, uh, I'd be fascinated to see where that lands. But in terms of the John Gray move, were there other people who kind of could have been in this seat? Was it him and no one else? And if there were other people, are those people going to stick around? I think Jason made a really good point about this deep bench. I think there were a number of qualified candidates. He mentioned Bennett Goodman, head of their credit business, GSO, Joe Barada, head of their private equity business, David Blitzer, who heads up tech ops, along with Chad Pike, as you say. You know, there are other candidates, Dave Calhoun, one of their operating partners, extensive experience at General Electric and, and Nielsen, Michael Che, their chief financial officer. I mean, I think the list is quite long, which speaks to the kind of depth and breadth that Blackstone has in terms of talent uh, to potentially run the firm. I think, I do think that John was the one everyone was expecting for all the reasons we've kind of touched on. Uh, You know, he's been involved in this business for quite some time, but I think to your point, there's a number of different candidates and they've started turning over the next generation of leadership, even among those separate businesses, you know, under Goodman and in credit, they just promoted Dwight Scott to president, a younger dealmaker last year, a newly created role of president of the credit group. John McCormick just took over uh, day-to-day running the hedge fund business, BAM, under that was originally under Tom Hill. And so I think we're starting to see this kind of shifting of the guard, so to say, across the firm at large. And I find this fascinating from an industry perspective, too, because it was true, I think, for a while that when the firms were smaller, if you didn't get picked, you'd go hang out at Shingle and start your own private extra job. It happened at KKR a few years ago and even happened last year when Alex Nawab did not get promoted to co-president as Scott Nuttall and Joe Bay did. And, and he did, you know, very publicly sort of go out on his own to start his own thing. Blackstone is at this interesting institutionalization moment, it feels like, which makes it more akin, obviously, on a on a smaller scale to more like a Goldman Sachs or, you know, these right. sort of more legendary partnerships on on Wall Street. It's not an old firm. And yet at the same time, I mean, it's but it such also a doesn't moment. sound like a private. I mean, to me, and, and this may be a misread, but you know, it sounds like GE. It sounds like an old-fashioned conglomerate. It's a bunch of really smart company people, lifers, vying for the top job. And when they don't get it, they stay on and they get some other job or portfolio that makes them feel good about the world. That doesn't sound like private equity. Private equity to me is entrepreneurial. It's hard charging. It's like, you know, go out and start your own shop if the shop you're at doesn't give you the job you want. But that feels... 
Well, there is a now. I think that's an interesting point. I mean, that there is less swashbuckling, I think, that goes on in in private equity these days. And you know, these are publicly traded companies. They have not only their limited partners, the big pension funds and endowments, who give them money, but they have public shareholders that they've got to keep happy. They've got to make quarterly reports to Wall Street. They've got to be thinking about their dividends. They've got to be thinking about you know all the things around you know being true to their stakeholders and diversified. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, all these different things. I mean, these are these are sort of grown up companies in a lot of ways. And so you do sort of face these, dare I say, sort of existential questions around a firm like this, which these last 30 years have been phenomenal. I mean, you know, John Gray is one of somewhere between three and five or six. And Melissa can keep me honest with this billionaires that have been minted by this one company. I mean, that's incredible when you think about, you know, where it started in 1985. And and so how does he make his mark on a firm that has seen this level of growth and success over the last 30 years? From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. But does it ultimately, does it sort of squeeze out that? I mean, when I think of private equity and the sort of barbarian of the gates example being a very obvious one there, you know, they're sort of smaller and more aggressive and more willing to do things that other traditional corporates are not because they have that sort of entrepreneurial spirit. Over time, does that just get eroded as you see, you know, not just firms like Blackstone, but as you say, KKR, Carlyle, Apollo, like they're all getting bigger and they're all compared to where they were 10 years ago, vast. That's the trillion dollar question. Seriously. (laughs) I mean, like in the sense that, you know, Melissa rightly mentioned, Schwartzman has ambitions for these guys to double their assets under management, $800 billion in assets. That's a staggering amount of money. Can you really be nimble? Can you be as as risk indulgent, (laughs) if that's if that's a phrase. You know, I think there's an important point to be made there as well, which is, yes, these firms are, you know, in the case of the publicly traded firms that you're you're mentioning, the Blackstone, Apollo, KKR, Apollo's of the world, you know, they are public companies. They report to these public unit holders on a quarterly basis. They have to be diversified, et cetera. But there's also something going on within the LP community, the investor community, where they're saying, we want to come to a one-stop shop. We want to come to Blackstone and get access to their real estate exposure and their private equity exposure and their credit exposure all within the same firm. Because these are, you know, we're talking about pensions and endowments and things like that, that want to write large checks and really one go. And so a firm, you know, from the perspective of these firms, if they can offer those various different business lines and have these relationships with large pensions uh, and other clients, you know, this can work in their favor to really be diversified, to really be this massive conglomerate. Yeah, that's a fair point. And and I think that is a very, that's a very different business to manage in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, when you're talking about being a steward of one pensions, slug of 
in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars. It's, it, it's a fascinating uh, place to be. Is there a place left then for the sort of smaller, more, what I think of more traditional private equity firms? I think you've seen at sort of a, a barbell evolve, right, where you have the kind of Blackstones and KKRs and Carlos of the world who really have no choice because they're publicly traded because, you know, whether they care to admit it or not, are in, in part judged on their ability to grow assets under management and to throw off the requisite fees and to throw off some pretty predictable fee streams. And then you have the more barbarians, <laughs> barbarian-like uh, guys who are much more monoline <laughs> private equity who probably are swinging for the fences a little bit more. And you, you see firms like CDNR and others who have remained just private equity firms. And, and they, at least theoretically, are saying, we can deliver those eye-popping IRRs, which is the main way that private equity returns are judged, and and these big return on invested capital, where you can get you know two, three, five, maybe more times your money uh, over the course of a fund. But I also think crucially, they can do things that are socially unacceptable, maybe too strong, but they can do things that really test the patience of sort of corporate tolerance. Whereas if you're Blackstone, you can't these days because you're so vested in kind of getting along with everyone and making stuff work. It's a good point. It's a good point. I mean, the the the, the notion of the eight hundred billion, you know, do- dollars of assets under management at the gate just doesn't quite work, <laughs> right? It sounds, it sounds kind of ridiculous. Um, I would also add there, though, that you're seeing a lot of sector-focused funds spin out. So we're seeing from these large conglomerate firms, the tech sector head head out and start his own tech-focused or software-focused firm. And that's gaining traction because that's a very niche exposure and they feel like they have a very competitive advantage being at a much smaller, nimbler firm. And, you know, data over the long term shows that first-time funds, if we can use that as a proxy for smaller funds, tend to outperform some of the generalist or, or larger peers over various time frames. And so I think there is appetite to play in that smaller arena, the challenge is, can you deploy checks of size there? And do you have time to go diligence all those smaller firms with more niche strategies? And so I think that that's kind of one of the push and pull forces we're seeing. Yeah, because these big investors, they may say, look, if I can put more money to work and you can effectively guarantee me 12, 14, 15% a year, I'm totally cool with that because I can put a big slug of money to work. And that is ultimately more effective for me than if I'm putting a much smaller amount to work and getting that 20, 25% return. I mean, it's, there is some, and this is where I get uncomfortable, there's some math involved here <laughs> that yeah. uh, that you have to take into account. But it's, the broader point is that it's as much a function of the kind of money that's coming into yes. the industry as it is the way the private equity firms are now wanting to behave. Totally. So the point at which maths meets behavior, that seems like an ideal way to end a discussion on private equity. Thank you very much again, Jason and Melissa, for joining me. So that's it for another episode of Deal of the Week. Join us next week for more on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm just left to thank our producers, Magnus Henriksen and Topher Forges. See you next week. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? 
And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.